Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I've been having a problem. I've been looking for a new podcast to listen to, but all of them are crazy nowadays. They're all either really right-wing or really left-wing or just really out of their mind. So I found this new podcast called Bro History, and it's just like Mama used to make it back in the old country. If you want to listen to guys talk about stuff that they're probably not qualified to talk about, but occasionally get qualified people to get on their show, then this is the podcast for you. It's funny, it's lightning, and most of all, my mama says yes to it. So subscribe to it and give it a five-star rating on iTunes. If you're listening, these guys are hard working class men. Well, actually, they're just a bunch of tools from New York, but they appreciate your support anyway. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing well since we're being joined by uh, two professional smart people today. <laughs> on today's show, we have uh, Joseph Solis Malone, and then we also have Jose Nino, uh, both friends of the show, who've been on the show, uh, Bro History, multiple times. We figured we'd do like a four-way conversation just to discuss multiple topics um, how are you doing, fellas? Doing well. I'm doing great. Awesome. Um, so I guess we should just get started. Um, you know, we're on, we're all, all four of us are on the line right now. Um, we were sharing a text earlier and I wanted to start this off and I'll direct this to, to Jose first, cause I wanted to, uh, see what your, 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 uh, your take on this was. So right now, you know, just looking at like approval ratings around the world, it seems like every Western leader has very low approval ratings. And we just witnessed basically the, the Boris Johnson's government collapse. He resigned the other day. Most Western approval ratings are, are either in the 30% range or 40% range. Um, why do you think that is right now? To me, that is largely owing to the economic warfare that a lot of these countries are trying to wage against Russia to like basically sanction Russia to the last working class European with five euros in their pocket. So a lot of that stuff is really blowing up in their face. And I think this is like the straw that broke the camel's back because in a lot of countries, and I would also include the US as well, you are seeing a lot of social disarray whether it's like mass migration to growing crime and these economic upheavals, you are <clears throat> seeing like a maelstrom of socioeconomic dysfunction really just rip a lot of these countries apart. And people are 
are just getting sick of like the ruling classes there. And like when you have like the Dutch like going out like to protest, like you know something's up because like the Dutch really do not protest that like hardcore like same other countries like France or whatever. So there is like there is like a systemic breakdown of like the liberal economic system that we're watching unfold before our eyes and not to even mention a lot of like the supply chain issues but this proxy war against russia might be like the final straw that broke the camel's back and i've argued as well that if they continue this form of economic seppuku especially like europe it's going to become geoeconomically irrelevant in for, for like the rest of the 21st century so I think the highlight of this year is we've got a whole lot of what we would call Western countries with pretty low uh, approval ratings uh, and the standouts being, you know, some folks in, you know, either the developing world or, or the BRICS countries that are fielding kind of a higher percentage, notably India, um, Mexico, um, and topping the list here. Interestingly, Australia and Sweden have very high ones. So I'm wondering if... You know, there's something to this. Why is it that, uh, uh, Jose, that places like Australia and Sweden, places that we would consider Western, places that would probably also be affected by, um, you know, some of these economic impacts that you're uh, outlining, still seem to field fairly high uh, approval ratings? I think with regards to like countries like Australia, I think that they're they're probably not as impacted due to the fact that they're not as like reliant on russian energy and they're more much more integrated into the into the indo-pacifics like economic block and i think they're they've been able to kind of shoulder a lot of the stuff though they had very controversial lockdown policies that did result in like the labor party there winning a lot of seats but with regards to Sweden, I think there is kind of interesting because they took a really relaxed approach to a lot of lockdowns throughout COVID. And I think there's a, it's a combination of factors. As I stressed before, the for a lot of these countries, the economic sanctions war against Russia was like really like the straw that broke the camel's back. And for example, if you look at uh, Britain... Boris Johnson was like every other week he was like involved in like some type of scandal and the Tories there have a really bad habit of engaging a lot of like internal polit politicking and intrigue and there's been a lot of jousting with behind the scenes to try to get Johnson out and you couple that with they have like a huge refugee crisis too that's kicking off that actually they they're starting to get a lot um, – their mass migration levels in uh, Britain are reaching like Tony Blair levels of apparently and a lot of people are getting really fed up with that and really jittery. But Sweden um, has always struck me as one of those countries that's pretty well governed in like the West and it doesn't really have um, a lot of like blatant – corruption scandals and a lot of like political intrigue they've had like obviously like the refugee crisis and all of that but pretty much a lot of europe has that and it's generally seen as a pretty well-run country and contrary to popular belief it is pretty market oriented despite having a pretty generous welfare state so they've been able to 
<clears throat> shoulder a lot of like the economic costs of these sanctions pretty well compared to other countries. Other countries in Europe, though, uh, I believe that this type of economic blowback can will do like a number on them. Though there is like a trend I'm starting to see now that a lot of these illiberal majoritarian countries that have taken relatively neutral stances with regards to R Russia are very much like have popular governments from like India and even Mexico, like AMLO. Well, it's definitely pretty democratic, but his government had, uh, especially AMLO himself has <clears throat> openly criticized NATO and is not big on a lot of like the collective West's use of NATO to browbeat Russia and Interestingly, I believe like his foreign minister, though, kind of counter signals him and takes like a more pro West approach with regards to Russia. But with regards to, like Ammo, though, he is a very popular leader there. And I think what we're, we're definitely starting to see is there's a lot of like new polls emerging where the US no longer has like the ability to universally make governments toe the line when it comes to a lot of its geopolitical and economic projects. And I believe that this is a trend that will continue in effect as multipolarity uh, begins crystallizing as the new way of doing things on the world stage. That's interesting. Joe, what's your, Joe, what's your take on this? Yeah. I definitely think that, that Jose is spot on in terms of you need to look at the, the local conditions. Sweden, as he said, is very well governed. Its unemployment and inflation has been slightly lower than in other places in the bloc. Uh, you know, it also has been very helpful in terms of their political class uh, having something to unify around, that being uh, national security policy. So just look at the change in public opinion in Sweden uh you know last year at this time then you know maybe 25 30 percent would have been in favor of nato membership for the country now it's a clear majority and uh so i think that's been very helpful having something to unify the country around that uh, isn't directly related to cost of living expenses even though as i said inflation and unemployment haven't been as as seriously damaging to sweden as it has been in other places and uh, as Jose had said, Australia not being hit nearly as hard simply because they're not very reliant on, on Russia. Uh, they're much more tied into the Indo-Pacific uh, economy there. And yeah, I, I definitely think there, there's a lot of pressure building uh, when you look at the, the problems that are, are going on, and particularly the pigs countries, Portugal and uh, Italy. Greece and Spain. I mean, we're talking about double-digit rates of unemployment with near 10% inflation. Uh, the unemployment among young people is actually far higher than that. Uh, for uh, I think it was 18 to 35-year-old men in Italy. I mean, it's it's closer to 20% unemployment. So you're you're not going to have political stability in a country when you have those kinds of figures. So, for sure. I wonder how. How does Mexico play into this? Because, um, you know, I think they definitely haven't, they're not relying on Russian oil, obviously, they're over here. Um, they're also not immune to the economic issues that they've seen. And, and I was reading a little bit about how they're still struggling to reverse some of the heavy losses that they saw during the pandemic. Um, Jose mentioned that they had been somewhat critical 
politically towards NATO uh, and some of the actions uh, uh, that they've been taking recently. But at the same time, they do still yield a very high um, uh, approval rating of their leader. And they're not joining NATO, you know, so they don't have that same uh, national unifying principle. What's up with Mexico? Why are they doing so well uh, approval rating wise? Well, you have to also remember that Mexico, <clears throat> why I think AMLO is really popular is that a lot of the Mexican populace, and I'd, I'd extend this logic to also most Latin American populace, they have become very skeptical of like the collective West. They don't really like the U.S.'s overbearing policy. So what you've seen in Mexico over the past century was de facto one party rule with the pre party there. And then you had like the pan emerge in the 90s and early 2000s, which was a thoroughly neoliberal pro Bush party. And a lot of people got fed up with that. And that's why like AMLO, who is like effectively like a third party candidate, was able to ride into office. And he in many ways does uh, represent the will of like the Mexican people when it comes to a lot of geopolitics stuff and even economic reforms. Because he's more of a populist. He's not like a kind of confiscate private property style Marxist in the mold of like other regimes like in Latin America, whether it was like during the... Chavez era in Venezuela or Cuba for that matter. So he's been able to um, <clears throat> to kind of build a really popular coalition there. And my opinion with regards to Mexico is that they are kind of, in many respects, creating a kind of non-aligned movement where they are not exactly joining the so-called Bolivarian axis of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, but they are taking a more independent line with regards to a lot of like the U.S.'s foreign policy overreach. If you're looking for a country that would actually join NATO in Latin America, it'd probably be Colombia, which is one of the U.S.'s biggest allies, and that's owing to the fact that the U.S. military industrial complex and a lot of uh, the foreign policy establishment has poured a lot of money into into Colombia over the years to fight drug trafficking and um, take down like militant groups like the FARC, and there and there's actually been talks of trying to integrate it as like a NATO partner. But most countries in Latin America, in general, I I would imagine are not really down with this kind of stuff, especially their populace. I I would say that there is actually a pretty big disconnect between the media, the business class, and the political classes with that of the overall voting populace in those countries. And that kind of elite capture does allow a lot of these countries to gravitate more towards the U.S. But when you have populist candidates like AMLO come into power, they can totally upend that. And that's why he has been kind of a thorn in the Biden administration's side. Well, you, you say Colombia. You say Colombia is going to be our would be the most likely country in Latin America to join NATO. But do you think Gustavo Petro would be down with that? The incoming president. So I wrote an article about Petro in 
geopolitics and empire. And I pointed this out that while he has a past as like a um, being involved like in a uh, Marxist like guerrilla type of insurgency, his uh, political career path is very similar to a lot of socially like democratic politicians in like Europe that came from like pretty radical backgrounds that were at one point like communists, but then they just turned into like multicultural uh, social democracy types. And you see this with people like Merkel and all that. And I think he's, he's going in that mold because there is like a new plan that the, um, especially the more like neoliberal wing of the foreign policy blob is doing in Latin America, where they're trying to build a progressive coalition that consists of Colombia under Petro and Gabriel Boric in Chile and Alberto Fernandez in Ar Argentina to kind of balance against the Bolivarian axis and any other countries that are adjacent to that axis. It's basically like, it, it's like the way the U.S. deep state propped up the anti-Stalinist, anti-communist left during the Cold War. Uh, I believe that they're going to use that same logic in Latin America and still cooperate with Petro because even Petro is going to be largely constrained owing to the fact that his party really did not dominate in the legislative branches. And like I've said before, Colombia's business classes, their military, and a lot of like their elite classes, they're very much down with U.S. Co uh, cooperation. He, he'd have to really clean house for the <clears throat> for the country to really join the Bolivarian axis and that relationship with with Colombia and US is really strong and I don't think it's going to change overnight just because of a change in the executive he's going to have to really use a lot of political power um and um and have like people on the ground and and in the legislative branches to really change foreign policy in Colombia and I I actually think that he may end up becoming a pretty solid strategic partner for the U.S. due to those factors. It's really interesting because his uh, predecessor, the outgoing Duque, has very, very bad approval ratings, uh, according to a um, an opinion poll that I'm reading right now uh, that was released in March 4th. I think he had 23%. They, they did one, two, three, four, five, six different levels. So very good, good, more than more good than bad, more bad than good, bad and very bad. And his, you know, bad stats are heavily outweighing his good stats. Um, but I, I wonder how um, how this new guy is going to um, going to fare. I mean, I think he's, he takes office when in August, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Duque is weird because he comes from uh, he was like a protege of Alvaro Uribe. Uribe is basically the Putin of Colombia. He was like the person who helped like state build Colombia into a, into a kind of serious country that no longer became like a failed state. And he was able to really modernize it and build it. But Duque is more of a manager than like a state builder. And I believe that uh, has contributed to the, he's very technocratic and that's really contributed to his unpopularity there. And there's been a lot of economic mismanagement Petro, if he goes kind of like the the AMLO route, that might be like his key to popularity. But I do think he's probably going to end up being within 
the U.S. orbit. They'll have like some disagreements, but I don't buy the argument, especially some people on the right and a lot of like neocon think tanks that focus on Latin American affairs say that this guy is going to be like a solid fix for um, like a, like a solid lock to be a new member of the Bolivarian Axis. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking there and and also a lot of these people overlook a lot of the institutional constraints that Petro faces in Colombia. So, Joe, I want to ask you a question because I'm, I'm just curious because you write a lot about economics at Mises. Um, just just looking at the global economy, like are, are we in a recession right now? Well, you can only tell that retrospectively, unfortunately, uh, and it depends on what kind of definition you use. Certainly, I will not be surprised if most countries tip into recession, especially in the European Union. The United States, uh, it's, it's difficult to say. You have a lot of obsession in the business pages, for example, about the unemployment rate. Because one of the orthodox assumptions about a recession is that you're going to have a spike in unemployment. Now, if you look at most economic indicators, they signal pretty strongly that we're going to have a recession in the next year if we aren't already in one. Now, with regards to the labor market, what I always point out to people is that's simply a function of our demography. Back in 2012, I can remember reading an economist who said, look, by 2020, no matter what else happens, the labor market is going to be exceptionally tight simply because of the larger generational cohorts that are going to be retiring and the relative paucity of workers that you're going to have replacing them. So I think it's very likely that we're going to have a recession, and I don't think the fact that the unemployment uh, isn't going to spike the way that it has in the past is necessarily a signal of strength. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's very likely that we're going to have a recession. Uh, we may already be in one. Most of Europe, I think, is already in one. If you look at their economic slowdowns, of course, the, they're really being hit by energy pass through inflation uh, simply because of their reliance on Russian gas, which, of course, that could wind up getting cut off entirely. So uh, speaking of economics, though, one thing I had wanted to point out about Mexico is I, d I don't know that geopolitically uh, that's the thing to look at with Mexico. I think the thing to look at with Mexico is who are they economically relying on, and that's the United States. Their share of, G of trade as a percentage of GDP has only increased over the past 30 years, and it's going to continue to increase. And its largest trading partner is, partner is overwhelmingly the United States. And now when you look at a country like China, one thing that stands out about China is its totally underdeveloped internal consumption market. And one other thing to point out is that Chinese demography has already peaked. It peaked actually over a decade ago. And so when you talk about where are you going to you know, send goods, well, the U.S. is one of the only countries, Sweden, France, uh, New Zealand, but New Zealand is very small, obviously. There's no consumer market like the United States, and Europe is, is aging very quickly out of the buying period of their lives. Most people's bulk of their spending occurs between the ages of 18 and 40. The United States is the only country that's going to have a demography that's going to be able to support the exports that a, a growing Mexican economy needs. Mexico's own uh, demography is in not terrible shape, pretty, pretty solid compared to the rest of the world, but their internal consumer market is still uh, you know, developing. Uh, it's not anything too impressive. And of course, they have a lot of problems in terms of state control. Uh, you know, business doesn't want to do uh, business in, a, in, a, in an environment that's going to have high corruption and violence. So when you look at 
geopolitically, I don't think there's any chance that a country like Mexico would ever join NATO or anything like that because it would be unnecessarily antagonistic to other, uh, you know, crucial players in their supply lines. But in terms of who it's ultimately going to be in the shadow of and whose side it's ultimately going to fall on, it's going to have to be the United States. It's simply a question of geography and demographics, so which which play a huge role in, in economics. On that on that topic, I was reading a little bit, and, and Joe is hoping that maybe you can kind of explain this to me or give your opinion on it. Um, that you know we're, we're talking about the potential for going into a recession later this year or next year, or that we might even be in one. As you pointed out, it's something that we have to know retrospectively uh, to compare. I'm wondering how scary is this <clears throat> because I was reading a little bit about how you know these boon and busts of the markets are kind of cyclical. Uh, and uh, I, I saw it compared to kind of like uh, forest fire management. You know, there's uh, an underbrush of uh, dead stuff that needs to burn away sometimes uh, to maintain a healthy forest. If we make that comparison to a, an economy, there's always going to be cyclical periods of boons and busts. And, you know, the recessions are kind of necessary uh, to clear out the you know, the dead debris. And if we push it off, it, you know, becomes a, a risk of, uh, well, a very large wildfire in the future. Um, what is your opinion on the cyclical nature of, of these markets and whether or not we should be particularly afraid of a impending recession? That's an excellent analogy with the forest management. And I would say that there has been a policy by the Federal Reserve influenced by the new synthesis of post-Keynesian and monetarist schools of thought, which basically says, well, in periods when you're going to suffer an economic downturn, what you do is you hike government spending and you cut interest rates and smooth out the business cycle. So that's what's been going on over the past decade and a half, and it didn't work. Uh, so we basically have tons of companies that really have only been able to survive, that you can read, read about them in the scholarly literature. They're called huh, zombie companies. <laughs> Not a very technical term for it, but basically these are companies that have only been able to survive because there was a very, very generous market for its corporate debt. So the way you finance your operations is you can either float equity or you can take on debt. But because of taxes, the way that taxes are structured, there is a tax preference for debt. Um, now, junk bonds, nobody really wants to buy those. These are low-grade corporate bonds that are considered very risky. Well, there's been a policy of basically just unlimited buying of those kinds of bonds. Um, this is the program that you hear called QE. That's quantitative easing. Now, quantitative easing began back in 2011, 2012, and it actually, <clears throat> when they tried to turn it off, you had what was called the so-called taper tantrum. They were going to taper their bond buying. And there was a huge revolt in the bond markets. And so the Fed at the time, under Bernanke, backed off. And they were just starting to try and start offloading some of those under Yellen when COVID, or no, it wasn't Yellen by that point. I think it was Powell by that point, when COVID hit. And so instead, and so they reversed course and started buying even more. And so when in a, in a more difficult monetary environment, these corporations are not going to be able to survive. That's what we're headed into right now, because you're going to have to get the rate, the real rate of interest above the rate of inflation. Now, I don't know how long that's going to take, and there are a lot of moving parts in terms of what's causing the inflation. For example, supply chains. Those are, in large part, out of the U.S.'s control um, because of globalization. When China goes into a hard lockdown because of their zero COVID policy, that cripples global manufacturing. It just does. 
So that's out of their control. Uh, monetary policy, the Fed has completely screwed up over the past decade and a half, and it hasn't been one single person. And then when you look at something like, why didn't we have hyperinflation when the Fed started doing this stuff way back in 2008, 2009, 2010? Well, the answer is all the new money that they created mostly just sat there. Now, a lot, now, a lot of it got dumped into assets, so you saw asset price inflation. But when you did it during the pandemic, what you did is you, you, you gave the money to people who were actually going to spend it on real goods. And at the same time, you had a reduction in the amount of those real goods. And so we're going to have a period of prolonged inflation. I've written several articles comparing this moment to the 1970s, uh, which I think is the most apropos analogy, especially when you consider the impact of war on global oil supplies. I think the war in Ukraine and the Western response to it is very similar to what happened uh, in, in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War and uh, the OPEC embargo on the United States oil supply. So... Uh, it's, it's definitely very, it's, it's a tough situation, and, and I feel bad for the rest of the globe, because really, if we had better governance in the United States, we're really the only country that, that can come through this. I mean, we have theoretical energy and food independence, a great demography, and total geopolitical security. Uh, the only reason that, that we're negatively impacted by all of this stuff is because of bad uh, elite management of the money supply and of our foreign policy. Uh, the rest of the world is going to suffer horribly. Uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of death, quite frankly. There's going to be a lot of death that would have been completely preventable. I know globalization takes a lot of wax, but really, once globalization is gone, uh, boy, there's going to be a lot of places that have been tenable as civilizational nodes, as functional states, that are no longer going to be so going to be a very tumultuous couple of decades. So, well, well, what are some areas that you think are <clears throat> are really going to be hit hard? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, predictions that there's going to be a global food crisis. So was there is there like an area that you think may be hit um, harder than others? Rather surprisingly, China is actually the most globalization dependent state on Earth. It is totally reliant on food imports, energy imports, and access to healthy consumer markets. If you look at the countries that imposed sanctions on Russia uh, in the aftermath of the invasion back in uh, February, those are the developed high-power consumer markets that China absolutely must have access to. And so if there is a conflict between the two and... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
basically they decide we're just going to bite the bullet and and just engage in what's called mutually assured economic destruction the chinese regime would collapse in in months um you know uh, the the idea that we should intervene militarily uh you know to protect taiwan really all you would need to do is sail the fleet into the inter into the indian ocean and just start interdicting their oil supplies and i mean the, the chinese economy would die right away there's no question about that and so I actually look at China, and it's it's very curious. Uh, I, I have to wonder because she is very aware, I and mean, he was aware when he took power of all the different problems that that China faced. And he's basically said things like, you know, the next decade, this is the one, this is critical, and that's because past twenty thirty, the outlook doesn't look so good for China. Um, they've already peaked. Uh, they've really been trying, therefore, to build institutional strength to try and entrench their their existing position because they know that the weight of their economic heft is not going to last their demography that's already peaked so it's it's going to be interesting but china is easily the most globalization dependent state on earth uh any of the like korea japan all those countries i mean they can't support their populations uh without globalization uh the middle east there's there's they don't make any it's it's a desert they have oil they trade the oil all over the world. They get food and high technology. Um, MBS has definitely tried to start ginning up a high-tech industry, and I think that's a very smart thing to do. But it's also dependent on the relative security of global capital markets and the free flow of goods. And I just don't know that that's going to last when eventually globalization ends and the u.s brings its fleets and its bases home you know I, that's certainly something that i have i have advocated for but that's also because i'm an american and fairly selfish so i i recognize that we will be totally fine here and really the the the, the western hemisphere will be fine between mexico canada and the united states we've got everything we need so the rest of the world is just going to be really out of luck, especially Europe. Europe is going to be hugely out of, out of luck. So, well, so, so it's interesting that you kind of answered my question in a, in a way uh, and kind of took us all over the world to get there. Basically, if I could paraphrase what you're saying is like, we'll be okay, um, but maybe the rest of the world not so much. I wonder, though, you know, if, if managing a small recession now would actually be to the benefit uh, you know, globally, uh, rather than uh, some practices like what you were saying, quantitative easing, and 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 kind of delaying the inevitable on that for a kicking the can down the road, so to speak, for a larger uh, recession or even depression. Do you think that just ripping the bandaid off might be a good idea? <laughs> Let's just get through <laughs> it now. Well, there's there's it's it's politically impossible to do that. The last person who actually did that and did the responsible thing and allowed the business cycle to complete was George H.W. Bush, and he was booted out of office. And after that, every single political leader has leaned on their Federal Reserve chairman and done everything they can to lean on Congress to make sure that fiscal, fiscal and monetary stabilizers were activated. That's simply put off the pain. Uh, so it, uh, that's why I tell people to look at the, at the, you know, the recession of 1920. The recession of 1920 is very instructive because what you had was a natural, one of the last real natural boom and busts. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into all the reasons that it happened, but basically there was a lot of pressure on Warren G. Harding to do something. But he said, no, the economy is going to recover. And sure enough, it's zoomed right back up. Uh, you know, you had 18 months of, of pretty rough pain. There's a lot of dislocation. Businesses that weren't efficient, that weren't competitive, went under. That causes a lot of pain and dislocation in people's lives. And I'm not trying to downplay that. Uh, and if, you know, if you wanted to do anything, <clears throat> you could try and use some, some household payments to, to get people through like our unemployment system. But in terms of subsidies to business, uh, that, that's just an absolute disaster because it allows inefficient businesses to, to carry on. This is going to be especially important as we start decoupling, as deglobalization starts. Because one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to be giving domestic businesses a lot more pricing power when you start cutting off trade. Now, autarky automatically leads to, to greater pricing power, but it's, it's not as bad a thing if these are highly competitive businesses operating without the support net of knowing that when things get real bad, the Federal Reserve or Congress, the Treasury, is just going to, is just going to bail you out. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what we have. That's why people who, especially young people, uh, are very turned off by the idea of capitalism. And I try to explain them to, to them, what we have here is, is corporatism. We have a corporatist state not anything really close to a free market capitalist state. So I think it's an important distinction to make. Free market capitalism, true free market capitalism, the truest form you could get, led to the greatest periods of economic expansion in, in U.S. history. Uh, I'm thinking particularly here of the period 1870 to about 1910. So we had a lot of hiccups during the start of the progressive era. And really, uh, we only really stabilized ourselves because following World War II, every other country was destroyed, and we basically were able to act as the machine shop of the world. And so that allowed us to, you know, grow out and up the middle class. That's what gave us our phenomenal baby boomer generation, whose retirements are now giving us all sorts of problems. It's one of the reasons I think that really we should take, for example, uh, a healthy number of young immigrants, if, if we can get them while they're still there to be gotten, uh, because that because our millennial generation is really just not having enough kids. And if if the trend continues by 2050, we could be looking at a demographic trajectory closer to Germany, which is not a demographic trajectory you want to be on. So theoretically, we have enough millennials that if they would all start pumping out kids, we would be just golden till the next century. But for a variety of reasons, they are they are not doing that. So. I'm not doing my part. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. There are a lot of there are a lot of reasons that that people are not having kids, and a lot of them are economic. Mm -hmm. uh, the cost of raising a single child is two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. What from zero to eighteen? Yep, that's nuts. So when you're so exactly exactly, and that's that's one of the reasons I point out that you know countries like when 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 you industrialize when you move when you move people from the farm to the city, you do several things that necessarily impede birth rates. On the farm, kids are free labor. Kids are a help. Uh, it's easy to feed them. You grow the food right there. When you bring, when you move everyone into the city, you have less space. Uh, kids are now a uh, a financial net negative. Uh, they do not work. They do not contribute. And so it's it's not surprising that that China's you know even if they hadn't undergone such silly social engineering projects like the one and two child policies, their demography was always going to start cycling in the other way. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so opposed to state control is even the best intentioned state policies 
have have unintended consequences. And in this case, it's going to result in the maybe the collapse of the Chinese state in the next 15, 20 years. Wow, that's an interesting prediction. I don't consider it all that radical because I think that U.S. domestic politics is moving strongly towards deglobalization. I think that if you look back, the president who won each presidential election starting in 1992 was the president who promised to do less. Bill Clinton promised to do less than George H.W. Bush. Ironically, when George W. Bush was running for the presidency, he kept beating uh, Al Gore over the head about nation building abroad and how we don't do that stuff, which is, you know, the height of irony. Obama promised to do less than George W. Bush. Trump promised to do less than Obama, than Clinton. And then in the 2020 election, uh, b- behind all the rhetoric, Joe Biden was essentially parroting Donald Trump's policies. Tariffs, autarky, rebuilding American manufacturing, reshoring. You know, there was a lot of talk about we'll lead the free world and stuff. But the way we got the free world to go along with our policies was by opening up was by allowing countries to just dump anything they wanted into the American market. And that's what we call free trade and globalization. And so it's very clear that the American public has not been wanting to do that stuff anymore for a long time. And that trend is going to continue. And uh, once it's gone, it's gone. And China is going to really wish that uh, they hadn't been such a bother. I'm going to be quite honest with you. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. Well, well, it's interesting you say that because the Biden administration, they've actually increased their rhetoric. Like their rhetoric is more uh, hostile towards China. Uh, recently at the NATO summit, you know, NATO stated that China was a, I think a strategic challenge was the language that they used. Do you think that this is what they're thinking? You know, Western governments are saying, okay, we kind of have China on the ball, by the balls right now. So we can afford to have this more aggressive rhetoric towards them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in policy documents. It's in all the major think tanks. Just uh, two months ago in Foreign Affairs, there was a whole series of articles about how China is actually a lot weaker than we thought, and we could really push them to the limit right now. Um, I don't approve of, of those kinds of policies. I think that those, those kinds of overtly hostile and aggressive rhetoric, I think that only plays into the CCP's hands. Because when the bill comes due and everything is falling apart in China, it would be better if they didn't have someone to blame it on. Whereas U.S. policy seems perfectly engineered to give the CCP an out, to be saying, oh, well, things were just going great, but then the Americans, they couldn't stand that we were becoming so big and so strong, and so they've undercut us, and, you know... No, I I look at their system, and, you know, the mutually assured economic destruction, that was a deliberate policy choice on the part of Bill Clinton, who started this. And, well, he was basically carrying on a policy that he inherited from George H.W. Bush. But there was, a, there was one underlying piece of logic that is totally irrefutable. And it is that if you cause an economic uh, disaster, in the United States we have another election. And the party that wasn't in power gets in power. If that happens in China, there's going to be a revolution. Because the CCP's legitimacy is entirely based on the fact that, look how well we manage everything. You don't need to have a say in things. We take care of everything perfectly. Well, they've been able to shuffle a lot of things underneath the carpet. All bills come due. I only feel sorry for the people who started predicting this stuff 20 years ago because they've had to eat 20 years of people saying, oh, when's that collapse coming? But it's, it's pretty soon. It's pretty soon. So, well, And I think U.S. belligerence just hurts it. 
Well, you know, it's like people like John Mearsheimer, you know, their big warning right now about U.S. foreign policy is that what we're effectively doing is that we're pushing China and Russia into a union by, um, you know, by our uh, hostile rhetoric towards, well, not hostile rhetoric, hostile policies at this point, let's just be honest, it's way past rhetoric, at, you know, when we're, when we're funding proxy armies to fight Russia. But, you know, his worries is that, you know, we're going to create some really great enemy in the long run between Russia and China. And it was a really big mistake for the United States to even, um, you know, send Milton Freeman over to China and give them prices in the first place. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm curious to hear Jose's take on this because, you know, we, we had spoke in, our, in the last time you were on our show that the U.S. was creating very dangerous enemies by our policy. So, um, Jose, what's your general take about, um, you know, U.S. policy towards, towards China right now? Um, I'm not a big fan of it in general, especially um, with like the on the military and and I'm more of like I'd say like a, an America first paleocon on that where I'm fine with um, with decoupling from it and also limiting immigration from there and other countries too. But um, I'm really against the the military type of like containment strategies that people are using uh, that want to use, especially after Mike Pompeo gave that speech at the Hudson Institute, which I believe was pretty reflective of what the DC blob <clears throat> has in mind for US grand strategy of trying to practice dual containment against Russia and China, which is absolutely like insane. However, I do agree with <clears throat> Joseph on um, like China's economic prospects, I'm not sure if it's going to fully collapse, but I'm not a big Sino-triumphalist like some people in the alternative media space due to the fact that it has a lot of demographic issues and their economy is still pretty rigid despite like how liberalized it has become. And ultimately, China, a lot of China's economic success is owing to the liberal world order that was established after like 1945 by virtue of it being on the winning side of World War II. And as a result, you have like the U.S. Navy controlling a lot of like shipping lanes there and allowing for trade there. And if like the U.S. were to like actually retrench, uh, China will be faced with a lot of problems because they're going to have to like actually invest um, a lot in a Navy there to keep things secure. And in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of uh, piracy and all of that, coupled with a lot of its domestic issues. It's its launch is going to be very much like delayed. I still see it definitely like as a power, but I'm not um I, I'm not very convinced by some of like some of the arguments in the alt media space and multipolarista space that it's going to really be like peer to peer with the US. It 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 will probably um be pretty dominant in its sphere of influence but uh, my worry is that if the domestic situation in the u.s gets pretty bad it might give some of these people in the blob bad ideas about using a foreign policy conflict to try to unite the nation and i've seen this take <clears throat> in a lot of media ranging from like the financial times like people like Janan Ganesh to people like Steve Bannon that are uh, kind of like advocating for a type of like strategic competition 
with China that could get a little hot as a way to unify the nation. That's one of my biggest fears because they're, they're, if the social situation and economic situation deteriorates in the U.S., there is like that temptation to try to find an enemy abroad to rally the country. But right now, <clears throat> yeah, we are going through like a form of like deglobalization. I tend to think that they may, uh, U.S. policymakers may try to do a lot of nearshoring in Latin America. And I would not be shocked if <clears throat> a lot of these really like neoliberal types try to resuscitate like a North American Union style project with Canada and Mexico as well. But <clears throat> I'm still pretty worried that there is a pretty broad consensus now. And I see this across the entire ideological spectrum of trying to get hawkish with China. You're seeing like, like from like progressives getting worked up about the situation in Xinjiang to a lot of right-wing people that want to basically relive Cold War memories by going toe-to-toe -to -toe with China. You are seeing a kind of consensus, a really hawkish anti-China consensus emerge across like the political spectrum. Heck, even a lot of the chat groups I'm in with a lot of libertarian people, you're seeing a lot of these people worked up about China. And like, I'm not like a big fan of like the CCP and all that, but I also am not interested in potentially getting into like a thermonuclear conflict with it or getting involved in some type of great power conflict at a time when we have a lot of domestic issues to sort out. And to me, this dual containment policy coupled with a lot of like the U.S.'s irrational domestic policies, if they go like hard body on this, we will probably see like a system collapse. So I just think it's really misguided and I'm not a um, big fan of it. I think that's that's interesting, and it's a good segue into another topic that we were discussing in our um, text chains here, uh, which was a speech that uh, Mike Pompeo gave uh, not too long ago to, um, I believe it was the, the Hudson Institute, which is uh, a conservative American think tank um, here. And he gave this long speech, and, and I think they, they're calling it like the three lighthouses speech, where he outlines, among many other crazy things, um, the intention or uh, the the geostrategic focus uh, that the United States have to uh, implement, which is building three lighthouses for liberty. I'm quoting him here, and, and I'll, I'll read what he says. He says, these beacons should be centered on nations that have great strife, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. They can be the hubs of the new security architecture that links alliances of free nations globally, reinforcing the strengths of each member states in time, linking these three bastions with NATO, as well as the new and expanded security framework for the Indo-Pacific will form a global alliance for freedom. This will benefit America. So uh, <laughs> kind of parroting what you're saying here, Jose. I mean, like, I don't really love the idea of getting into a conflict. And of course, you know, Mike Pompeo, you can take his words as basically, you know, gr giant grains of salt because he's not, you know, he's not anything right now. Um, but you're kind of right. I'm, I'm hearing the same thing, you know, from everything I'm reading, a lot of people getting really upset about China um, in one form or another. And it does seem like, you know, all conservatives and liberals and, and everything in between are going to find a, you know, a common enemy in China. And uh, I'm wondering if, you know, if, if Taiwan is next. I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the show. What do you think? 
It's actually pretty telling he gave that speech at the Hudson Institute because that is like a think tank that <clears throat> has a lot of overlap in terms of like members and donors that were part of the project for New American Century. So that speech is pretty that he gave there. I would argue is pretty reflective of where of where a lot of the foreign policy elites are in the U.S. That said, I, I do believe that they may have differences in terms of how they want to achieve their goals of like full spectrum dominance, but. Pompeo is definitely part of like the so-called right wing of that. And curious enough, um, he did get a lot of pushback from a lot of America First populists in that speech too, especially on some of the the Russia stuff. So there, there's going to be some interesting dynamics there. Yeah, I think the one part of that speech though that was pretty frightening, and he's at Pompeo has been pretty consistent about this since he left his public post that. He wants the U.S. to formally declare independence for Taiwan. He wants they want the U.S. to really egg it on to um, declare independence, which is the brightest of red lines for China. And if that happens, then all bets are off there. And I, I tend to think that all things being equal, the current U.S. policy towards Taiwan is decent. The strategic ambiguity, but with Biden's recent comments where he pretty much said like they would commit to like defending Taiwan then walking it back we're kind of seeing a drift away from strategic ambiguity and Pompeo's comments um are going to become like a I I think it's going to become like the standard for like Republicans like I do think that Republicans will um especially of this really hawkish variety will try to push that much harder against China in the future and Democrats will try to use like other more like soft power mechanisms to to confront China but I I am kind of worried though that a lot of the political class may use this great power conflict as a way to um, to try to unify a lot of disparate political groups at a time when there's really hardcore polarization at the domestic level what what does and maybe both of you can chime in on this um what does china like a, a fallen regime in china even look like like it sounds kind of terrifying to think of like the ccp collapsing and that government collapsing you know prior to them being one national government really you know they were kind of carved up by colonial powers and ran by a bunch of warlords you know, that in the early 19th century after their last, uh, you know, dynasty fell. So, uh, like, what does that even look like? Is it like some crazy unstable state with a lot of hostility? And like, what, what's your general take? I, I think I think if we look back at Chinese history, one thing that we should be conscious of is that while there is a great deal of cultural continuity going back millennia, in terms of its actual state, which is the borders that a central authority controls, the, the current borders of China have only been held by a central authority for about 300 years, and they weren't even contiguous years. So the idea that China has always existed, and, you know, that's, that's very much nonsense. Chinese history has been defined by fragmentation, by multipolarity within the country itself. They've had multiple warlord periods, the most recent of which, as you point out, was in the uh, early 20th century. And it's actually interesting that uh, when the uh, Qing dynasty was, was ultimately toppled, rather than recognizing the Republican government 
of Sun Yat-sen, uh, the Harding administration chose to recognize uh, the series of warlords who were just kind of feuding. So that that was that was uh, just an interesting piece, and I actually have a a large paper uh, where I where I go into all of this stuff, and I'll be presenting that at the at the Libertarian Scholars Conference this year. But it's it's fascinating history uh, of China as a state, and in terms of its present situation, well, you could see the Tibetans having their own state breaking away, uh, the Uyghurs breaking away. You could see obviously the Hong Kongers breaking away. Taiwan is already you know a de facto independent state. And then, uh, you know, you could see the Sichuanese, who are culturally distinct from the Han, break away. Uh, it would be very difficult. It would be very difficult to, to maintain state control in the absence of the foundation of state power, which is military power, which is dependent on economic power. So you, you've, you've had, you have a long history of, of, of the, the uh, eastern coastlets wanting more to do with Japan and South Korea and the wider world than they do with the interior of the country. Uh, in the south of the country, there are more ethnicities than, than I can even count. Uh, there's something like 60 different ethnicities in, in the jungly, mountainous regions of, of southern China, which basically look like Vietnam. So you can imagine a, an attempted pacification campaign down there just being a nightmare. And uh, so... It, and of the other powers surrounding it would, would not be generous. This is something I like to emphasize. There's no reason to think that unless the United States acts totally belligerent towards China and attempts a new policy of containment, that China is just going to dominate its region and become a regional, hege uh, a regional hegemon like the United States. That's simply not going to happen. It's ringed by states who, have, who want nothing to do with Chinese hegemony. They'd like a taste of Chinese uh, you know, technology and uh, domestic markets, but that's all going away. Uh, especially with the decoupling that's going on technologically. So much of that technology was either bought, transferred, or stolen. And a lot of the patents that they uh, register, I did some research into this because it caught my eye that over the last several years they've been registering a lot of patents. Uh, a lot of them are of very questionable quality. Um, and that, that makes sense, especially when you have a lot of state enterprises doing it. And one of the things that she has done, Jose had mentioned the liberalization path that China was on, well, she has turned that around. She attempted uh, to continue the policy of liberalization, but got freaked out by a, a very terrible stock market crash in China and several other issues that happened. And he's basically decided the, the state should retake its place at the center of all economic activity. And that's just, that's not the way to do things. Um, no one thinks that. It's never worked and it won't work. Uh, not if you want to be rich. And uh, I definitely think Jose and, and you as well, Henry, were right on the money. And Danny, maybe it was you who mentioned it. But pushing China and Russia together, just the heights of stupidity. It's, it's really, really incredible to see that they've done that. Especially when you consider that Russia could have just been uh, Europe's gas station. And yeah, they would have meddled in Eastern European politics in places like Ukraine. But really, is the alternative better? Is this alternative better than that? I don't think so. Russia was never a threat to do much of anything. It, it's already in total demographic collapse. Its skilled population has basically disappeared, and that was in part a deliberate policy choice. So China was always going to be the more, uh, you know, I'm putting myself in the position here of a U.S. strategic planner who wants to rule the world here. Uh, Russia was, a, you know, someone who you wanted to keep on side because China was obviously the much more powerful threat. And instead, they've gone and messed it up horribly. And so...
Yeah, a, a collapsing Chinese state is, I think, probably likely uh, if decoupling occurs. And that could be a potential disaster, especially depending on how the U.S. behaves and how its neighbors behave, too. Because there are China has border disputes with multiple of its neighbors. It has border it has unresolved border disputes with South Korea, with Japan, obviously Taiwan, the Philippines, uh, India, Russia is technically you know quote unquote occupying parts of China uh, from the old imperial days. So if China feels threatened and the CCP feels threatened, you know I obviously don't rule out the idea that they would that they would use some nukes. Their nuclear arsenal is very small, and it's not meant to be blowing up people thousands of miles away like ours is or like Russia's is. It's meant to repel a potential attack. And if things were completely going south, uh, you know, I'm not cheering for Chinese state collapse. I just think that their policies and the general trend of geopolitics is moving against them. And so I definitely think it's something we should be worried about. Jose, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Its history is very cyclical in nature where there's a lot of centralization during it's like best years, but then you see a lot of fragmentation and breakdown of the Chinese state that often leads to like a warring states period. And if it does go through like a systemic collapse, you could see a, a type of warring states type of scenario where you'll see a lot of external actors from like the U.S. to a lot of its neighbors trying to prop up warlords and like proxy armies and that could get pretty nasty. And yeah, like the U.S. should not like really get involved in that. But yeah, I don't really buy like the um, some of the arguments like a lot of like uh, Sinophiles like say like this is like one like continuous coherent state where it's really cyclical where it it, it does <clears throat> have like central um, centralization is definitely a feature um, in its history, but then there is always like a systemic breakdown because it, China, if there's like one thing that you, you do see like of continuity is that China is a really bureaucratic state, uh, from the jump. And that at times, uh, makes like the state really sclerotic and really clunky. And that results in a lot of like issues, like further down the line for it. And, I do believe, like in a full-blown like deglobalization type of environment, uh, China's gonna going to have like a lot of issues, and it's going to if they will have to like really scale down a lot of like their geopolitical ambitions as a result. But <clears throat> look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters, and what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I still believe that it's really like like China, like the China threat is like largely overblown by a lot of people. And it is like when you look at like Asia, you have like a lot of like strong states like that surround China that are very nationalistic 
and don't really want anything to do with China as far as suzerainty goes. Like, yeah, the, the, China might get the upper hand in terms of the economics and all that, but they definitely don't want to become like tributaries or any of that stuff. And um, yeah, that's why I tend to believe that the the China hype goes pretty overboard. Plus, you also have to keep in mind that um, that um, because of like uh, China's like aging uh, population and all of that, it, it's going to have to really get a lot of its like domestic house in order before it starts go um going on these like really like fantastical geopolitical ventures that people like in the blob talk about. So I, I just don't see it turning in um, like becoming like this like huge like blitzkrieg force like the way a lot of people uh, say and a lot of like um, like like I said like also one thing to note China barely has like any allies too they don't really have like any like alliance structure that's really meaningful like even like Russia at least on paper has the CSTO. So it has like a lot of it has like a lot of issues in its own backyard, and really like if I were like a CCP like policymaker, it would be to try to like sort out a lot of its like internal like domestic politics because like ultimately like China has been like a huge beneficiary of like the liberal world order, and if that world order is to like collapse, um, there's going to be like a lot of upheavals, and that's going to be like one of the biggest challenges that lie ahead for it. I'm curious if, if either of you have actually, you know, uh, do you know about like Chinese, I guess, quote unquote, colonialism in Latin America? Like, what is that all about? Yeah, Jose, I, I, I've actually written a few papers on this, but I know this is more your area of expertise here. And we both kind of have the same thoughts as far as the China threat is basically an overhype excuse to keep doing the same things that we're doing in terms of our military budgets, in terms of perpetuating these cushy jobs at these think tanks. Uh, for me, it was just surprising that someone like Tucker Carlson, who, who is a, a probably the foremost commentator for the American populist right, to have them buying in to the baloney of, of the Chinese, uh, you know, global dominance uh, canard. Uh, what, what do you what do you think of that? Yeah, with regards to uh, Tucker Carlson, you are seeing a fissure emerge among a lot of like the American populists, right? Because you have like one section that is like a kind of classic America first type non-interventionist faction of that movement that stresses non-intervention in military affairs across the board. Some of these types may want to like halt migration from China and other countries and also decouple economically, but they stop at the question of military intervention. Whereas there is a kind of like populism ink that is that <clears throat> mirrors a lot of conservatism ink in how their foreign policy is still pretty universalist. Some of these people may be somewhat dovish on Russia and want to repair relations with Russia. But they ultimately are like big China hawks and they want to instead focus their attention on China as opposed to Russia. But among a lot of the younger America first types, there's a broader skepticism of trying to get involved militarily against China. 
Now, in terms of Latin America, really, China's growing influence there is mostly economic. It's not very military-centered. You you have seen, for example, in countries like Panama, which has like a actually like a Chinese population of like four or five percent of its population is Chinese. They have tried like Chinese companies have tried buying the Panama Canal there, but it's generally failed. And China does have like an active um, foreign policy of tapping into its foreign policy diaspora and projecting influence there through like the United Front Work Department, but. A lot of that stuff, um, I think, is kind of exaggerated. And if like if it's like that much of a threat, you just like basically restrict migration from there. It's like that simple. But um, and and now in like Latin America, though, there are some like interesting cases where I know some people in like Argentina. There's like this observatory there that China like help like fund and build that a lot of people have like conspiracies about that it's like dual use that it has like a military function but when you look at like chinese influence in latin america it's mostly economic in nature and a lot of and, and it's most predominant in south america because i can attest to this because i lived in chile for a few years and that's how i got acquainted with huawei pro products this was like around like 2014 and all of that and there's a lot of like market penetration there but there's very little evidence that China is going to be like setting like military facilities, let alone trying to form like alliances in Latin America. It's mostly in line with a lot of China's trade policies and being a pretty neutral actor there. That said, this entire military threat with regards to China could turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy if the U.S. gets incredibly hawkish with its foreign policy in China, because at that point, at that point, it may try to respond in a tit-for-tat fashion and start not only heightening its economic relations, especially with the Bolivarian axis, but also start sending troops. Because we've already seen Russia um, already want to um, bolster some like security ties with like Nicaragua and even Venezuela. And I think that's largely the product of like the U.S.'s like, proxy war against it. And you could see some forms of great power blowback and... If the U.S. gets overzealous, that's when like that stuff can happen through yeah, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I was I was thinking kind of along the same lines there. You could wind up with like a tit-for-tat retaliation. And in terms of the economics, one of the things that I found was Henry had mentioned Brazil. What I found was that investment flows from China had peaked five years ago and that actually a lot of the money that's been promised since then never materialized. And it's because a lot of the returns on the, pro on the projects that they invested in weren't very good. My understanding of, La of South American geography is that it's, it's very, very difficult to build projects that are going to make a return on the money. And especially when you talk about trying to cut roads through these mountainous jungles where you know it gets so hot that the road literally just melts away, I just think there are a lot of connectivity issues, especially when you think about something like the Chinese who don't have a serious deep water navy. And you had mentioned earlier that that would be something that if the order were to collapse, they would need to start sinking serious money into. I just look at, you know, them trying to get beef from Argentina. That is an insanely long trip. That is an insanely long trip there, especially in waters that you by no means control. 
And so I just I look at the economics and it, it doesn't seem it seems like the time to have been worrying about that, if you even thought it was worth worrying about, was five years ago. And that now the investment flows have largely stopped and reversed. And it's because the product, the projects were not worthwhile. And I think a lot of the projects were more geopolitical in nature, not necessarily focused on building economic influence uh, or, or getting economic returns, but on building influence in regions. But that that sparked a lot of pushback uh, from what I've I've from what my research uh, showed. So I, don't, I just don't know that geographically that's going to be something that's that's possible. Would uh, the U.S. be kind of primed then in this uh, downturn, as you said, in the last five years, if, if those kind of economic investments have have deflated? Would does this open up the U.S. to maybe strengthen our ties to these countries and step in definitely, instead? Definitely. But my worry is if these projects had been worthwhile in the first place. American companies would already have been doing that. <laughs> and if they were worthwhile, the Chinese would not have stopped doing them. Mm -hmm. So my fear is that we're just going to start throwing money down there. And I do think it is very important for us to build relationships there. But I think we should do them in ways that are going to be actually beneficial to ourselves. And in terms of other countries in the region who might want to play ball with a country like Russia or China, I think it's worth looking at what's happened to countries that in the in the hemisphere that have refused to follow the American uh, drumbeat. Um, Venezuela is not a country that really anyone would want to live in. And that's U.S. economic warfare. That's, you know, U.S. interference in its domestic politics. Uh, there was an attempted coup a couple of years ago. I mean, I, I don't know that any country, and you can go, go all the way back to the 80s and the 70s and the juntas and the proxy wars and the killing. I mean, you look at uh, someone like DeSantis or Pompeo, who's going to try and run in 2024. I mean, things could get very, very ugly, very, very violent, um, because these people are crazy. Uh, yeah. Are, are, yeah. And, and they have no compunction at all with killing people. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the biggest fears the, um, that I have with a, a lot of the, the right-wing populist movement is that there is a co-optation that you're seeing i had like someone on my show actually keith preston he was talking about how there is a concerted movement to co-opt and like divert a lot of like the legitimate america first populist energy in a way to create like a form of rebranded like neoconservatism and a lot of people that are a lot, a lot of the people like say like DeSantis. Um, are very much of that of that ilk. If you look at like his like donors and the people around him and and like the interest groups that he answers to, it's very much going to. If he were like president, I think he would have a pretty hawkish foreign policy with with Latin America and even with like Iran, China, and all those countries. Because um, here's the thing about like the Cuban lobby is that it's very not only like hawkish towards. The so-called troika of tyranny in Latin America—it's very Zionist too, and um, I've had a lot of interactions with those people, and um, yeah, and I, I do think that they—you may see now if like U.S. pivots to Latin America, you may see like the U.S. like fund a bunch of like uh, boondoggles and other stuff in Latin America that just creates like a whole set of problems there. I think like really they, it needs to go back to basics with productive like bilateral trade. 
and just like retooling from there because if they try to do like a Latin American style like Belt and Road initiative, that's I think going to be like a lot of wasted money and that's probably going to exacerbate a lot of the corruption that's pretty endemic in Latin America. What would with. what would a I mean, you talk about America first, um, but I, I've we're also talking about maybe stepping in where China is faltering in Latin America. And, you know, Joe earlier on the program had said, you know, at least Mexico, Canada and, you know, uh, the United States by ourselves, we can withstand uh, economic recession. Is there any appetite in expanding that, you know, idea to Central and South America uh, with, you know, maybe like an America's plural first uh, approach. And what would a healthy um, building of those relationships look like? What would they entail? Well, I, I definitely think bilateral would be the way to go. You want to avoid corruption. Corruption is a systemic problem in particularly South America. And there's a lot of wealth inequality. And you're not going to be able to have stable, productive, prosperous states if you do not have... Uh, functioning institutions you know i am a small government advocate but that doesn't mean i want a weak government i want a very very strong government i just want it to do very very few things the problem is you have these very large bureaucratic states that are not well governed and the money just disappears and it happens here too and that fosters a lot of distrust of the government it fosters uh, a lot of pessimism uh, it destroys social capital, which is something that you really need. Uh, and it also stifles innovation, creativity. It leads to a lot of uh, offshoring of large amounts of capital that you really need reinvested in, in the country, but which no one wants to reinvest in the country because you have lack of law and order, you don't have good infrastructure, yada, yada, yada. My, my biggest questions, uh, when, you, when you talk about dealing with such a large array of countries... When you're talking about just Canada and Mexico, I mean, they're right next door. They have every incentive to go along with, you know, what America basically wants to do in terms of economics because it's making all of us richer. Um, but when you start involving, you know, 20 other countries, it gets very complicated, especially when you're talking about places where building infrastructure is going to be very difficult and where there's endemic corruption. I think quitting the war on drugs would be huge. Uh, if there was one policy that I thought would really help the hemisphere, it would be end the war on drugs. Uh, it has caused so much death and impoverishment and destruction to absolutely no end at all. Um, that that would be that would be I guess that would be my my step one. I would say let's end the war on drugs. Yeah, what what do you think the implications of ending the war on drugs would be um, in Latin America specifically? Well, it would allow our domestic producers to start making drugs. Uh, they would be they would be cheaper because they would be locally sourced. Um, so that would take away a, a lot of money from from cartels and whatnot in, in South and Central America. Um, but it would it would require those governments to do the same things as well. You know, it's like I say, you know, you go back way back into history. You know, how did <laughs> how did capital creation start? Well, you basically had, you know, people who were strong enough to uh, take things and then they you know, consolidated that to themselves. You know, a lot of these groups have a great deal of capital in hand. You know, they could go into legitimate business after that. Uh, once they're legitimate actors within the state and they are no longer criminals, their incentive to use 
uh, extrajudicial means to enforce their dictates and their priorities would diminish. So I think it would lead to a, you know, a a decline in violence. Uh, If you look at the statistics of countries who have decriminalized drugs, you've seen a decrease in in overdoses as well. Uh, It would increase tax revenue because this would now all be taxable revenue. Uh, that would help these states build infrastructure, improve social services. And so I think it would have many good impacts because people are still going to use drugs anyway. It's like Ron Paul said, if heroin became became legal tomorrow, who's going to go do heroin now? <laughs> Other than the people who already do heroin, which right. they're going to get it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think the war on drugs was a totally misguided policy and it's a huge net drain. I mean, think about all the money we waste trying to fight the, the drug war and all the money we spend locking people up who then are not productive members of society anymore. Uh, it's just a totally counterproductive policy for what should be, you know, I mean, it's a victimless crime. So, well, well, you know, I'm sure someone listening to this right now is completely cringing. They're like, oh, boy, end the war on drugs, legalize heroin. <laughs> you, you know, here's here's the thing. If you force things in the black markets, because when you illegalize something, you make it, a, you turn it into a black market. What you're doing is you're raising the prices, and you're also you're raising the risk. So you're raising the prices, but you're also since you're raising the prices, you're pushing entrepreneurs into that business because the prices are so high, because there's such a you know there's an incentive such a there opportunity mm-hmm. to make profits. So there's always you can legalize something, but it's always going to exist. Like there's always going to be a, an illegal gun trade or an illegal, uh, illegal um, drug trade because it's just for people who don't have many opportunities elsewhere. You know, it's it's a way to make a lot of money. But when you legalize them, you allow things to happen at an economy of scale, which lowers the price and removes the incentive. It's a risk reward debate. Well, here's it's exactly, it's exactly like mm-hmm. you said. We need to have smart incentive structures. Since we're talking about, you know, um, the populist right, and, and I just want to add something to what Jose was saying earlier about the populist right being co-opted. I don't know if you've all read uh, Max Blumenthal's book, the, the Management of Savagery. He actually writes about this in his book, and he basically makes the case that the, that the right-wing populist movement was co-opted from the beginning. Um, and he makes a pretty compelling case about that. And um, another thing that you're hearing a lot from, like, you know, the, the America First types is, like, not only kind of bellicose rhetoric about China, but also about the cartels. Like, you know, I agree on the, the first half of their arguments, usually, why are we going to war or funding this proxy army in Ukraine? I 100% agree with that. But then they're like, the alternative is, is we should be going to war with the cartel or we should be you know, increasing hostilities against China, which I think is, you, you know, you're replacing one negative with the, with another negative at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, um, that's like becoming pretty common amongst like the populace, right? And yeah, I do think that it, it was pretty much co-opted from kind of like the beginning. Really, if you look at the history of the U.S., right, uh, especially like especially after like Reagan it's gone like very much much more hawkish like categorically because like even like in the 1950s there were at least like some realist and like non-interventionist factions but for the most part the U.S. right regardless of like its permutations has been categorically pretty 
hawkish on foreign policy and it's going to have to like require a kind of like an insurgent movement that is categorically non-interventionist to to really change it and to be honest i'm not very sanguine about the prospects of um of a lot of like the u.s right like going going to like a really like strictly non-interventionist like type of foreign policy because every time they oppose a certain conflict they just use it to <clears throat> to just shift resources to another boneheaded conflict and yeah i'm not a big fan of of the way a lot of that's going and it's really like a problem that of like really like the republican party and the right just still really being stuck on very interventionist priors yeah it certainly seems that both you know populist movements on on the right and left are just really very marginal when it comes to just impacting the national conversation um like you can say that on the left on the left wing side as well um, you know, I think that right wingers wrongfully say things like the, the Democratic Party has been co-opted by communist or, or, or left wing Marxist. Honestly, I think it's the opposite. It's the, the Democrats co-opted the, the communist types or, or you know, corporate America is, has co-opted kind of like this, you know, these left, these left wing talking points in these in these uh Left wing, left wing visions. It's not. It's not the other way around. Where you know, there's people who are in real positions of power who believe in Marxism. Because it's not. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that um, like true Marxists, there, there's like just there's very few of them in this country, and there there's not. There, there's really not one person in political power. At least the right wing. If you want to talk about like true kind of uh, uh, right wing America first libertarian bent. There are people in government who represent that side, and I would cite Rand Paul as one of them, and then I would cite um, um, Thomas Massey as another one. There's not a single like left wing, uh, true like left wing populist in our government. You can just see that reflection on on, on every every Democrat in the House voting for uh, funding the forty billion dollars in Ukraine. Maybe there ought to be. It'll it'll even us out a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think it's more accurate. <clears throat> if you yeah, if you actually look at like the left in the West, it's actually um pretty like thoroughly post-Marxist. If you read Paul Gottfried's book, The Strange Death of Marxism, it's actually like pretty good because he argues convinc pretty convincingly, and he's a paleoconservative historian, that a lot of the left has gone from class reductionist politics to just like expressive individualism uh promoting like social deviancy mass migration like multiculturalism and now it's become much more amenable to a lot of like neoliberal interventionism a humanitarian intervention it's very different in fact a lot of old school marxists they are actually pretty like socially conservative and anti-woke and a lot of them also are very skeptical of like the u.s imperium as well and from like my interactions, they they've been like largely pushed out and marginalized from a lot of of uh, a lot of political discourse. Now it's really like the most like radical things that like you'll see is like probably like the squad and all that. But that's really aesthetic when it comes to like substance. They vote in line with like the the neoliberal types like in the Democratic Party, and that's what really counts is the behavior. Like screw the aesthetics. That's like 
that stuff is really window dressing at the end of the day. I I agree with you. Um, all right, so we're coming up on an hour and a half. I know Joe needs to get out of here um, for his party, so I think we'll we'll start wrapping this this thing up, um, guys. Uh, tell us where you t- tell everyone where you can find your your work, um, Jose. Where can we find your work? Yeah, you can find my work on Substack, Jose bcf.substack.com the substack is called jose nino unfiltered that's also where i have my podcast el nino speaks which you can also find on itunes spotify and stitcher and i'm also on twitter at jose el nino yeah i would rec- i really would recommend everyone to listen to el nino speaks i listen to it every every i listen to every episode is actually one of the few podcasts i actually listen to so I, I really enjoy the show that you're, you're putting out. And Joe, uh, tell everyone where people can find your work. Uh, well, you can find it at my website, uh, www.jsmwritings.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at underscore Solis Mullen. Uh, you can find me at the Mises Institute. Uh, I have works published at the Libertarian Institute. Antiwar.com is actually going to be running uh, a preview uh, of a working paper about the fake China threat. It's my most comprehensive treatment so far. It's a preview of the paper that's going to be uh, presented this fall. I'm really hoping to get some feedback to see where maybe I can improve the paper. So if anyone out there is listening to this who's a big China hawk who thinks everything that I've said about China is just crazy and wrong, please go check out that paper and then hit me up and let me know what I'm getting wrong. Uh, Yeah, that's it. All right, all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode. Um, If you want to support the show, Make sure you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. And then you can also join us on our Patreon where you get access to our Slack community. And um, both Jose and Joe can be found in our Slack community. So if you want to talk shit to them, which people (laughs) have before, that's the way to do it. (laughs) Um, All right. Peace. Peace, everyone. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.